again. Welcome to this week's episode of Knowing God with Heart and Mind. This is the virtual church classroom where we study uh, the doctrines of the faith. And perhaps with help from our Lord and the Holy Spirit, we can know God with our heart and mind. And perhaps even know God's heart and mind just a little bit better. That's the idea anyway. And so each week we come together to read scripture, to talk about big theological ideas, and uh, talk about those basic doctrines that Christians hold in common. And uh, you'd be surprised how many there are. Uh, most of the denominational differences are around tastes and uh, and uh, certain minor doctrinal issues, if you don't mind my saying so, because that's definitely an opinion. But uh, nevertheless, this is the Christian believer class that we're taking, uh, taking on right now with the Knowing God with Heart and Mind podcast. That means that we're studying from the materials written by J. Ellsworth Callis and uh, produced by the Cokesbury Publishing House. We are in week four of our study, and we are uh, ready in just a moment to study God as creator. And uh, hopefully you've done all your readings and you're ready to go. But first, a couple of quick announcements. Now, this study that we've begun is based on the Christian Believer class, which takes about 36 weeks to complete, that is, consecutively, and uh, at least that's how many topics we're going to take on. Now, if you were to take this class in uh, your church or a religious organization and use all of the materials, you would work several hours every week and then spend a couple of hours in the classroom with your facilitator. Instead, you get about 45 minutes to an hour with me, and most of what you're hearing is uh, made up by me based on my study of this particular uh, curriculum over the last several years. About almost 20 years now, I've used this curriculum off and on, and so I'm pretty familiar with it. But uh, I want you to understand that I think you should take this class if you get a chance and that this is no substitute, nor is it a substitute for your regular participation in a community of faith or a church. Uh, There's people out there that God has intended for you to walk with on this journey of faith, so uh, just keep that in mind. Now, it is August here, uh, first week in August, and uh, we are heading into a big weekend here in Jasper, which we call Strassenfest, and uh, the Strassenfest is a huge celebration of this community's heritage, uh, German heritage, and so therefore you will see the red, yellow, and black bunting and flags all around the community, and uh, you're going to go downtown, and you're going to see booths up and down all the main streets of the county uh, uh, courthouse and uh, square, and you're going to see uh, lots of, of uh, church booths with different things to eat and to uh, experience. And, of course, there will be people selling their wares. And most importantly, there will be lots of good German music and not-so-German music. And there will be, uh, of course, the big beer garden, which if you don't 
understand anything else about German heritage, there's always plenty of beer. And uh, yet... Uh, not as much drunkenness as you might think. And therefore, it's, it's a fun time of celebration. So we're looking forward to it. There's much in this community that happens in and around Strassenfest. And uh, there are so many ways that you can experience it that we'll probably have to live here for a decade before we've tried it all. But uh, if you're not too far from Jasper, Indiana, you might want to come down and check it out. And if you are, why come see us at Shiloh Church on uh, Sunday morning at Shiloh United Methodist Church. Now, let's get on with our lesson. Now, as I said earlier, this is the fourth lesson in our series, and it is titled, The God of Beginnings. It is a study of God the Creator. Virtually every creed that uh, Christians would ever catch themselves saying, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, for example, which are the same and yet one is more expansive than the other, uh, in all of them there is this statement at the very beginning of it all that says, we believe God created everything that is. So to say that I believe God is the creator of heaven and earth is actually kind of a daring thing to say, especially these days. But if you said anything else, you'd be mistreating the very name of God. In this scientific age that we live in, we will dare to say that we think God is the source of our creation at our own peril because there are plenty of people who would like to criticize us for our childlike mythological belief system. They would rather try to convince us that all of this happened from nothing, that it just was sort of a big accident. And honestly, I find it a whole lot easier to believe that there's a creator. And if God is the creator, then what kind of people should we be? How should we relate to this creation? And if we call this creation sacred because it was made by the hand of God, how does that affect our lives? And in that respect, we're not talking about being, uh, uh, you know, ultra uh, ego, uh, e that's not the word I want to, eco ecology people, you know, you, it, we're not talking about being uh, tree huggers, if you pardon the term, because maybe you are one, but what we're talking about is, is recognizing that everything we see, including each other, is created by the hand of God. And uh, it's not so much, you know, we, we should be very good stewards of everything God has created and given us to care for. But more than that, we should have a great sense of, of um, reverence for what God has created. To, to simply look uh, into a microscope, for example, and be struck with awe by the great majestic genius of God's creation. That's the idea when we talk about having a, uh, a particular kind of reaction to the realization that God created all of this. We tend to give God credit for all of the beautiful and awe-inspiring things we see, but, you know, we should just as readily give God the credit for the beautiful and awe-inspiring engineering marvels and the artwork and the scientific discoveries and the medical breakthroughs and uh, 
the amazing thought processes of minds like Einstein, for example, to recognize that God is responsible for all of that and that we are, in effect, discoverers of God's majestic genius, that virtually every scientific discovery, virtually every new advancement in technology or, or uh, some other uh, creative process can always go back to the Creator who gave us the ability and the desire to join with God in this creative process. And so much of what we see and experience as science and breakthrough discoveries is really someone digging around in God's treasure chest of vast knowledge and finding one of God's secrets. And so this is the question we ask ourselves as we go to prayer. Dear God, we thank you for this special time of study and learning together. We thank you for this chance to really get to know your heart and mind. We're grateful that you have given us such easy access to your treasure trove of knowledge and an amazing love. And so, with love, we come to you, looking to know you better with our hearts and our minds, to understand your mystery and majesty all at the same time, to realize that we can know you and know how much you love us, even if we can't fully comprehend everything there is to know about you. And so we thank you, and we ask that you bless our study together at this time. Amen. Did you do your scripture readings? I hope you did, and I wonder what you noticed. Perhaps in the first three verses of uh, Genesis, or the first three chapters, I should say, you see this picture of God, the Creator, making everything that is. And I'm sure that you were also looking at some of the curious uh kind of conflict that exists in those passages. In chapter 1, you have a story of creation. In chapter 2, you have a story of creation, and they're both the same but different. And uh, I'd like to spend some time studying that with you, but right now, our focus is on God the Creator. So I want you to just bear with me for for this particular study, because what you see is not so much how God did things, but that God did things. What compels God to create? There's the question that we really want to deal with right now. When you read the story of creation, there's a fair question to be asked, and that's why. What what made God want to to create us or to create anything? Um, Why not remain in whatever state of being God has been in up to our existence? You know, some child will ask you and some adults, well, okay, uh, so God created everything that we can see, but who created God? Well, the answer to the question is a mystery that says no one created God. God is, was, and always will be. God is outside of time and space, and therefore God is. And for us to try to comprehend God's existence before our creation is a little bit like trying to understand your parents' existence before you were conceived and born. You will eventually hear stories about those times, but you can't relate to them. Not really. 
And the further back you go, the harder it gets. And uh, so you could, uh, you could learn from the stories of others, but you can't personally experience or wrap your mind fully around those things that happened before your time. And this is really the way to think about God, the creator. So the question then is, why? Why did God create? Why did God make the Garden of Eden? And why did God put Adam there? And then why did God put Eve there? And if this garden was an exclusive location where God's hand was particularly on it, then what about all this other stuff that was outside the garden? And what about this created space that exists outside the garden and this created being who came and tempted Adam and Eve? What's up with all of that? These are hard questions. And they're questions that we can answer in a way that will satisfy us, but never fully. So just know going in that when we try to resolve these questions, the fundamental thing is knowing God's heart and mind and knowing God with our heart and mind. Why did God create Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden? Why did God create everything, even that which is opposed to God? And then when you read from Job, you saw that beautiful narrative where God and Job interact with each other, and God describes God's creative process. It's absolutely stunning to listen to that reading. Scholars say that the book of Job is probably the oldest book of the Bible, and what that means is is that it may not predate uh certain other stories like Genesis, for example, but what it is, is a book in and of itself that was written in a time that may very well predate the authorship of the book of Genesis. So in other words, Job and his story uh, may very well predate uh, Moses and his story and the uh, writing of his books or scrolls that are accredited to him in those first five books. So we have a very ancient story of God and God's relationship with human beings, in particular the man Job. Then when you read from the Psalms, you saw how God's glory is manifested in creation. And when you read Isaiah you really began to understand not only that God is the creator of the universe and all that is, but God is Lord over all that is. That means he's not just the creator and, uh, you know, like a Frankenstein whose monster eventually overpowers him in some way. In fact, God remains sovereign over everything that God has created. And then from the Gospel of John, we begin to see a picture of God's redemption, and we begin to see uh, not-so-subtle hints that Jesus the Christ is a co-creator with God or in union with God in this creative process. And so part of God's creative process involves redeeming that which God created and then rejected God. And so we have a picture then from Romans and the Gospel of John of a God who not only loves what God has created, but saves what God created, even from itself, even when it rejects God. 
it's kind of mind-boggling, isn't it? But then that's half the fun. So let's just carry on and see what happens. Now, Dr. Callis says the ancient psalmist said that fools say in their hearts there is no God, Psalm 53.1. And the second place probably goes to those who try to comprehend God. It is quite audacious for the finite to try to understand the infinite, but it is a holy audacity. The saints of all ages have endorsed it. God is most an issue for us in nature. This questioning was inevitable for those hundreds of generations who lived so close to nature and were so obviously at its mercy. But our urban culture is not exempt. A torrential downpour overwhelms the most effective sewer system. A tornado cuts a path of destruction through a city and town, and somehow we never get a sophisticated get so sophisticated that we do not at times feel a catch in the throat on a spring day or when we look beyond the traffic lights to the stars of night. No wonder then that the most widely recited creed, the Apostles' Creed, describes God as maker of heaven and earth. The Nicene Creed begins in the same style, maker of heaven and earth, but goes much further with of all that is seen and unseen. Two modern creeds use the same basic language. The Korean creed refers to the God to God as the creator and sustainer of all things. And the statement of faith of the United Church of Canada speaks of God as the one who has created and is creating. Some might say the creeds are beginning with what is visible and tangible before launching into matters quite beyond our physical reach. But something in us insists that the most real thing we do know is nature and that it demands the most credible explanation we can envision, God. A cynic will say we call God the creator in order to fill the gaps in our knowledge. Believers say, rather, that what we know about God compels us to this way of looking at nature. According to Thomas Aquinas, God is the only necessary being, the only being who cannot not exist. He reconciled the ideas of divine transcendence, that is, God being totally other, infinite, and incomprehensible, and divine immanence, God's presence in the world, by saying that God exists at the center of every human being as the cause and creator of its life. Isn't that beautiful? And so, if science has this never-ending question of how God created or how creation happened, then the believer must surely be asking just as frequently, why? Why would, create, why would God create the heavens and the earth and all things in them? Ancient philosophers made the questions especially difficult by reasoning that, by nature and definition, God should not need anything, and if God is incomplete, then why create? An African-American poet said that uh, God was lonely and made the human creature for company. But traditional theologians note that God need not feel lonely because the Trinity itself provides communion. A Jewish novelist said, probably only half seriously, God created humans because God loves stories. 
So once again, let's not get too hung up on the reasons for God making what is. Rather, let's see if we can understand the heart of God. What does creation tell us about God? In my own weird way, when I tell you stories about nature outside my house, for example, or as I contemplate the community of people that we call the church or even just communities in general, I find all sorts of interesting signs of God. I think that at least this pastor has a tendency to be a little bit of an amateur sociologist, amateur anthropologist, amateur psychologist, and uh, apart from that, a theologian and uh, a, a wannabe scholar. And uh, when you combine these various interests, uh, the natural tendency to look hard at history and systems and uh, kind of the way things work in this world, it it is a natural thing for a believer to see God in it, or at least to see the antithesis of God. That is that when you look at God through, or look at the creation through this lens of God-fearing, a God-loving believer, you tend to see things that thoroughly identify with the character of God as you come to know it. And then it's pretty easy to recognize when things are absolutely in opposition to God's character. And so for that reason, I think we can look to creation and see signs of God. We can start with the most minute things in creation, those things that are invisible to the eye. And you can see all these signs of this great majestic genius at work. And I like to say the majestic genius because there's a majesty to the way that God creates things and an artfulness. And if I was to say that there is one thing that is so evident in all of creation from the tiniest thing to the most complex idea a human can conceive, there's always this majestic artisan at work. There's this incredible beauty to everything that God does, this remarkable uh, depth and purity in what God does. And uh, humans try to achieve it, but they fall short. And yet in nature, it is present. I have watched many of those uh, uh, programs on TV or listened to audiobooks or even read about different things that uh, are created, innovations and ideas that are present in our present-day uh, present society. And what I find is, is that more often than not, scientists and inventors are imitating creation. You know, they want to invent a, uh, a wetsuit that keeps you from freezing in icy cold water. And so they look at how the lion seal uh, stays warm and they begin to realize that the skin of a lion seal and the uh, wetsuit or dry suit depending on the application and they, they create is uh, similar and uh, I saw a program once where they were trying to figure out 
how to make a uh, a type of shoe or glove or some sort of clothing that would make it possible for someone to climb uh, the side of a building, let's say, to rescue someone. And what did they do? They looked at bugs that have the ability to stand on your window or something and seem to be completely comfortable in a position that if we tried to uh, copy it would result in us falling. And uh, so, you know, even the most hard-hearted, atheistic, uh, humanistic person will have to acknowledge that much of the great discoveries and much of the great achievements of humankind come from nature. We observe nature and then try to do what it does. Those people who, who pursued the human flight, human-powered flight, uh, they all did the same thing. They looked at animals that can fly and they studied the shape of their wings and the technique they used to fly and and uh, they used the way uh, they studied the way they used the air currents and things and all of that led to the aviation innovations. And so when we see all these human creations that have, have we've marveled at in our town of Jasper, there's some incredibly beautiful architecture. And it was built by people who wanted to glorify God through it. And what's amazing is, is that uh, God is glorified through it. Even if that person became vain and took great pride in their creation, God is still glorified because through the eyes of the believer, there is no beauty that was created by a human being that can't first be attributed to the creator of humanity. All of creation cries out praise to God. All of creation glorifies God. And the only part of the creation that seems to have trouble doing that is humanity because we get a little proud. We get a little full of ourselves and we like thinking we did that. And uh, it's so important, as we've talked about at Shiloh Church these last few weeks, that we take a break, that we step back away from our endeavors and our achievements once in a while to acknowledge that they are really just an imitation of the Creator, that there is such a beauty and loving craftsmanship in the work of the Creator. We mustn't miss that. Think about those beautifully intricate works of art, those carvings or creations of, of uh, miniature models and things. I mean, just anything you want to pick and, and understand that, that uh, there, is a, there is a loving craftsmanship there. There's a, a skill, but it's a skill that comes from deep within and it's an expression of the soul, the soul that is the image of God. And so when we look at God's creation, we see a particularly meaningful expression of God's majestic genius, his incredible artisanship. The first century theologian Irenaeus said, For creatures must have the origin of their being from some great cause, and the origin of all is God, since it is itself was not made by anyone, but by it 
were made all things whatsoever, it being God in his reference here. Therefore, first, one must believe that there is one God, the Father who made and fashioned everything and brought being out of nothing. And while holding all things is alone beyond grasp, but in all things is included this world of ours with man in it, so this world, too, was created by God. I like what he says about being in particular. That's a great uh, great idea that I love to wrestle with. Is, is, uh, we, we talk about our soul, for example, but really it's our being. It's our, it's our awareness of who we are. It, it is, uh, it is a, a sense of our self that goes beyond our body. When you look in the mirror, you see your body, but you see your being. It is your being that is so subject to the self-criticism and uh, self-hatred that we often experience in front of our mirrors. It's our being that we talk to when we're muttering under our breath about ourselves or someone else, you know. And and so what Irenaeus is saying is that... that uh, only the creature that can contemplate its being can truly understand that it is the creator who gave him or her their being. Yeah, I'm silent for a second because I want you to think about that. That kind of makes your brain hurts, doesn't it? Karl Barth said the world would not exist at all if God did not exist and if it were not for him, then... There is nothing. And so those people who would tell you that God doesn't exist have to reconcile their idea that all this great majestic art and science and amazing achievement is merely the result of an accident. Remember that uh, this whole discussion comes from the... Uh, the uh, creeds that we've been using as a guide for this and uh, in particular our study as a result of, of a examination of the Nicene Creed and remembering that I want to uh, just share this uh, really wonderful uh, word from Georgia Harkness who was uh, a thinker who lived between 1891 and 1974 there is, first, the affirmation that God is the creator of all that is. The truth is that we know nothing at all about the manner of God's initial creative act. We were not there when it happened, and the scientists cannot tell us. What we do know is this. God created and controls and continues to create an infinitely complex world about the various nature and biological processes in which his creativity is discerned, science can tell us much. What can be learned about God's ways of working through the regularities of nature we ought gratefully to receive. What we must not do is to confuse ultimate causation with chemical, physical, or biological processes and try to make the latter a substitute for God. A second truth to be appropriated from the first chapter of Genesis is this. 
the goodness of creation. This is expressed in the refrain that is repeated at the end of nearly every stanza of the great hymn, And God Saw That It Was Good. James Weldon Johnson is, in his sermon, in reality, poem on creation, in God's trombones, expresses this feeling in moving words, second only to the biblical account itself. For example, he thus describes the creation of the sun, moon, and stars. Then God reached out and took the light in his hands. And God rolled the light around in his hand until he made the sun. And he set the sun ablazing in the heavens. And the light that was left from making the sun, God gathered up in a shining ball and flung it against the darkness, spangling the night with the moon and the stars. Then down between the darkness and the light, he hurled the world. And God said, that's good. Well, now as we prepare to wrap up our study this week, I want to ask you to consider some questions. What questions about God as the creator are you still struggling with right now? Write those down. Think about them. Perhaps we can talk about it more. What thrills you the most about creation? What makes you believe the most about God as the creator? Now, if God truly is the creator of heaven and earth, how ought the believer to relate to the physical creation? What are the practical issues of environment and ecology for a believer? To declare belief in God as creator of heaven and earth is to say God is in charge. But sometimes our experiences in the world make us wonder. So spend some time this week considering life in this world. Consider looking up some of the hymns that especially affirm God's creation. Maybe even write your own hymn celebrating God's creation. Let's pray the prayer from the Eastern Orthodox Church. O thou who coverest thy high places with the waters, who settest the sand as a bound to the sea, and dost uphold all things, the sun sings thy praises, the moon gives thee glory, every creature offers a hymn to thee, his author and creator forever. I want to thank you for joining me for this week's study and uh, look forward to joining you again next week as we take on our next topic. I'm going to provide the readings for next week's study in the uh, description, so I won't bother trying to read them to you as I have been doing. Um, what I will suggest to you is uh, that you... Uh, make sure to write down or copy and paste the information from uh, that uh, description box so that you'll find it easier to um, observe these uh, passages that I'm going to share with you. But uh, next week, we're going to talk about giving a name to God. 
Our topic is giving a name to God, and it's a wonderful discussion. We get into all kinds of jams, especially in this politically correct age that we live in, where we try to figure out the right way to refer to God. We shouldn't say God is male or female. We shouldn't allow ourselves to... to uh, uh, over-personalize God. Some people would never say the name of God. They don't even write the full name of God. And so uh, there's all kinds of discussions about that. And uh, we're going to try to tackle that next week. I, I hope this has been a blessing to you. Please be sure to uh, communicate your your uh, benefit or if you have to, uh, go ahead and tell me what you don't like so I can try to make it better. But remember, we're friends. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, I think that uh, whatever we can do to serve each other, we can do with kindness and grace. But I ask you to never, ever take this as your one and only source of, of uh, Christian education or, or learning about church. Do check in to a good local church. Find a place where you can be with other believers. And and when I speak of that, I know that many of you are are uh, part of the church family that I serve as senior pastor, or you have been part of a church family that I serve. And you know that we struggle and strive to provide opportunities for people at every level of belief and understanding and knowledge. And uh, we'll continue to do that. So if you don't know where else to go, there's always room for you at uh, Shiloh United Methodist Church in Jasper. But if you're one of those folks who listens from far away, then I just ask you to look for a place that is particularly interested in helping you grow in your personal sanctification. That is your continual spiritual improvement and uh, your continual journey towards synchronization with God, your spirit and God's, your being and God's. That's the idea. And I pray this for you. And I hope that uh, we will get together again next week. You can visit uh, Shiloh United Methodist Church at shilohum.org. Shiloh, S-H-I-L-O-H-U-M dot org. And uh, learn more about the church and connect with me there as well. For now, God bless you and goodbye.